0: Everybody and welcome to you are good of feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my fantastic co-host Sarah Marshall. Today we're talking about 2018's A Star Is Born. We're talking about the most recent one that was directed by Bradley Cooper and also stars Bradley Cooper and of course Lady Gaga. But first. We should tell you that You Are Good, a Feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash good. We make this show with your support. I said that already, but that's the truth. Everyone who supports us on Patreon gets bonus episodes. There are a couple of bonus episodes per month. Our next one, I know I've said this already, but our next one is going to be about the newest Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We didn't love it but we have a sprawling conversation (laughs) that stems from our viewing of it. Uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Even if you are not into the content of what we're talking about in either these these episodes on this channel or our bonus episodes, I think you will enjoy the conversation regardless. And I love hearing from people too who are like, I don't watch horror, but I listen to you talk about horror. (laughs) I think that that is... Some of the most flattering feedback imaginable. Uh, you Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K N A C K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, if you need the videos produced, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. We made playlists inspired by each of our episodes. You can find a playlist in uh, the show notes. And uh, what else am I missing here? Carolyn Kendrick, who produces each of our episodes, she made an album of the songs that have shown up in uh, various episodes of the show. It's called The Music of You Are Good, Volume 1. You can find that on... Bandcamp. And you can also find it on some streaming services. So yeah, check out all of that. So we're talking about A Star is Born. So we talk a lot about codependence in here. I don't have uh, a whole lot to offer beyond what we say in this conversation. Um, But I talk about the book Codependent No More, which I think is very helpful or has been very helpful in my life. And uh, if any of these tendencies strike you as familiar, maybe check out the book Codependent No More. They talk about Jesus here and there in uh, that book. And if that's not your cup of tea, just, I found it interesting and I found it important. And I just looked beyond those references. Um, if, you know, if you can look beyond it, I think it's worth checking out. Codependent no more was super, super helpful for me. And also someone else, when they saw that we were talking about codependence in the context of this episode, asked if I knew about internal family systems, uh, which is a modality that can help you uh, better understand some of these tendencies. I am familiar with that, and that is maybe something that you want to uh, look up or look into, or if you talk to a professional, maybe that's something that has come up or uh, something that could come up. So internal family systems is something worth poking around, if any of this sounds familiar And finally, I've talked about this here and there in other episodes. I can't remember which ones, so that's not helpful to tell you, but I have. Inner child work generally has been very helpful for me in working through a lot of this stuff in being kinder to myself, in being kinder to the people who maybe have not been kind to me. (laughs) It's been helpful. So if that's not something you're familiar with, uh, check that out. If any of this is resonating with you, something that's worth poking around. It may not be helpful to your journey, but are worth examining as far as I can tell. All right, I'm going to stop talking about that. A couple of things. One, content warning. We've had a lot of episodes in a row that have had content warnings. I think moving forward, we're going to have less... Based on the ones that we've recorded so far, we have some great episodes with some great guests coming up. They're like romps and they're less heavy than these ones where it's just Sarah and me hashing out our issues. So we have a a content warning that I want to let you know about. We just talk about a lot of codependent stuff abusive behavior being on the receiving end of abuse both of us have dealt with suicidal ideation that's something that we talk about quite a bit here in the context of ego there is a lot in this episode and as always if that's not for you please go elsewhere within our catalog i think there are i'd say episodes that came out from 2021 back (laughs) ones That aren't as weighty as these recent episodes, but know that when we talk about these issues, we talk about them with as much care as possible because we have been there. We've been to these places and we're talking about them accordingly. But if they're triggering, please look into other episodes. We talked about Sam Elliott in the context of this conversation before he was a trending topic because he had a really weird take on Power of the Dog that he talked about on Mark Maron's podcast. And just know that that's why that didn't come up. That's why we didn't examine that because I would have loved to have talked about that. You know, if you're listening to this in the future, everyone's going to have forgotten about that. But if you're listening this week and you're like, why didn't they talk about trending Sam Elliott? That is why. All right, that's enough from me. There's just so many words to start off all these other words with. Let's get into it. Let's talk about A Star Is Born. Thanks so much, everybody. You are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall.
1: Hello, Alex Steed.
0: This feels like it would be inappropriate to come up big on.
1: There's something about this movie that's very strange, and I think it's that it just is so unusually normal.
0: (laughs) How do you mean that?
1: I don't know what I mean, but we're going to try and get there in the next hour.
0: Yeah, we're talking about A Star is Born, which I felt compelled to cover because I'm always deconstructing retrospectively, retroactively bad relationships I've been in. So I wanted, so here's how I got here. Here's how I got to A Star is Born. This movie came out and people had feelings about it. People were like, this is great. And then other people were like, this is bad for reasons. I don't remember what they are. A lot has happened since then. I
1: feel like everyone was like, this is great the fancy people were like, this is great. And the flyover people were like, this is great.
0: (laughs) I'd love to remember, someone will let us know on Twitter, and it'll be great when they do. But there was some, there was some backlash. I don't know what it was. But the, um, uh, but it was you're right, like largely, it was kind of across the board revered. But here's what happened. We had a great conversation about codependent relationships when we talked about Blue Valentine. And I'd love to keep that conversation going in some way. Cause I think that's important to talk about when we talk about love and feelings. And so usually if you look up a movie and you say, I want to see a movie about sexy space robots, you can look it up and then someone has compiled a list of 20 of that movie. Right. I want to see a movie about what about spurned first wives, like in the first wives. Mm-hmm. So, there's a, there's a list of that movie. If you look up movies where the theme is codependence, they're just like the computer just fizzles and burns. It's like there's like smoke comes out of the computer and it's like they're all about that.
1: Maybe that could be your first book, Codependency and Films <laughs> Retriever.
0: Yeah, I think that, that might be that might be the one. But the one that comes up is least as far as like spotty marriages and relationships that are romantic, but also have other things going on. Blue Valentine came up. 500 Days of Summer is another one, which I haven't seen, but we like to be, if that, if that title is literal, we like to you know stick to seasons and stuff.
1: It's about a lady named Summer, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Is it really? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we could have been watching that had I done my research. But it brings us to A Star is Born. 2018, because there's three at least three versions of this
1: movie. There's four, yeah. There's one from the 30s, there's one from the 50s, there's one from the 70s, and then we missed making one in the 90s like we were apparently supposed to, and then there's one from the teens.
0: Tell me what happens in this movie.
1: Yes, so originally when you suggested we do this movie, I was like, yes, I will watch all the stars as born, and then I will <laughs> compare them. And then I was like, hmm. I'll read the Wikipedia pages for all of them and I'll compare them. So I did that and I watched the most recent one. And what I found interesting about that is that they appear to all be very faithful to the mm. original, the 30s one, and have the same hallmarks. One of them is that the last scene is our leading lady performing in the honor of her, just going to spoil everything at the beginning, dead husband. And mm. dedicating her work and arguably life to his memory. So that's really interesting. So a Star is Born is about Bradley Cooper playing, I guess, Keith Urban. <laughs> <laughs> I was really sweating this while I was watching and I was like, he's kinda like Keith Urban, he's kind of like Garth Brooks. Like he has to be someone who Lady Gaga, she's like somewhere between 20 and 30, right? And she's a waitress. Who moonlights in a drag bar where she used to work sometimes? She's allowed into the drag queen sisterhood and she does an Edith Piaf act there, among other acts.
0: He reminds me of like a Lucas Nelson or like a or like an all like going back, like an almond brother. We only know he's country in name only, but like what could his approximation be out in the world. I like Keith Urban a lot as a, as an approximation. That never even struck me.
1: Well, and he's, I feel like he's like country rock, which I do feel like is one of... Croc. croc is which is one of the ways that a person can become extremely famous and yet irrelevant in modern America. <laughs> but yeah. yet the thing about his character is that he's also immediately recognizable in a dimly lit bar to Lady Gaga, who's Mm -hmm. a former drag bar waitress. So who is he? Is he like Garth Brooks? (laughs) (laughs) Because I wouldn't immediately recognize Keith Urban. I would have to see a picture of Keith Urban and the words Keith Urban underneath it to be like, oh, that's Keith Urban. (laughs) That's a good. So
0: I said we were. I said we were doing this on Twitter, and someone said something to the effect of like, "I've never before seen a movie that was so confused about the kind of music it was making a movie about."
1: <laughs> you know what this movie is about? It is about adult contemporary music. <laughs> it is the world's first adult contemporary musical.
0: So Gaga dis- notices him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so okay. So Bradley Cooper who's really giving me a lot of Jeff Bridges energy in this performance, Mm. is playing, we guess, a Keith Urban-like country rock singer who's a big lush, and he is riding around in his car after a show, and he decides to go to the first bar that he sees, which is a drag bar where Lady Gaga, who used to be a server there, is performing an Edith Piaf act, and he's like, you're amazing, and she's like, ah... I'm slightly unwilling to be won over. And then she's like, JK, I'm so into this, basically. (laughs) Right? It's like she puts up token resistance. And then she's like, no, yeah, let's do this. I'm just going to like run around with you and we're going to have fun. It's clear to me maybe even on day one that you have a pretty significant drinking problem no we know this because his half brother sam elliott tells her that Mm -hmm. so he pulls her on stage at a concert the crowd loves her
0: and she even says it to her dad before that happened she says he has a drinking problem like you or something like that which is a fun thing to say to your dad
1: right (laughs) Yes. And like, sorry if it sounds insensitive to call him a lush, but I like the word lush. It's old fashioned. My dad's an alcoholic. I guess like to say lush sometimes. Mm. So she puts up a little bit of re- resistance to the concept, but then she's like, no, I'm, re- I'm into this. And so he starts performing with her. The crowd loves it. Her career is taking off after an early performance. They're about to have sex and then she goes to the bathroom to freshen in a very relatable scene and then comes out and he has passed out completely. And Sam Elliott is like, yep, he's passed out. He sure drinks a lot, but he sure also loves you, little lady.
0: Sam Elliott is an 11 out of 10 Sam Elliott (laughs) in this movie. Like he's just Sam fucking Elliott.
1: Biggest wrote a Sam Elliott type or ideally Sam Elliott if we can possibly get Sam Elliott and then they got him. So That's great. (laughs) Dreams do come true. There's also there's like I got to say a lot of Fifty Shades of Grey energy here. There's a part, at least in the books, where Christian Grey's therapist is talking to Anastasia Steele. And he's like, Christian has improved more while seeing you for the past month. Then in the years I've been his therapist. And it's like, maybe don't say that to the girlfriend of like this very troubled young man who is your client.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. I feel like on some level, Sam Elliott's like, he's your problem now.
1: (laughs) He's like, I'm old. You're young. Take care of it. You can lift him off of the bathroom floor.
0: He throws her the keys like in a ZZ Top video. And then he's like, I'm out. That is what happens.
1: Right. He's like, my back is too bad to keep deadlifting this, this passed out guy. You do it. He is heavy and he is my brother.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh, we're on fire.
1: (laughs) It's true. Well, so anyway, their relationship is advancing. Her career takes off. She doesn't really become Lady Gaga. She becomes this sort of what kind of I don't know. She's like she
0: becomes like Jessica Simpson.
1: Yeah, right. With Lilu Dallas hair, even
0: though like her songs are initially sort of like singer songwriter heartfelt, but then she kind of t- takes it in a pop direction. But like Lady Gaga, in my mind, is just like a fucking giant, yes. like a, just like gigantic, and has been since the se- since listen, since the second someone at a party in two thousand ten showed me the Bad Romance mm-hmm. video, which had just come out on a computer, and I cried at the party.
1: That video changed. Everything, I really have to say. Honestly, I was like, oh my God,
0: it's Marilyn Manson multiplied by an actual singer.
1: Right. So it's, I guess, one of the weird things about this movie, not weird, but just kind of you notice it when you watch it, is that like you can't do the character of Allie in this movie ends up with this like relatively generic, like 2000s pop star fame. And like Lady Gaga is so not that. Like she reinvented the category of pop star essentially. So it's like very funny to see her being like Sarah Borellis who gets turned by the machine into Jewel in 2006. I don't know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely. There just aren't a lot of easy binaries for what's going on in this movie, probably because everything is like a composite. Yeah. Like they're avoiding a lawsuit or something. But yeah, it's very hard to figure out like binary composites for like what is being represented here. It's just like group of stories in which singer-songwriter becomes pop singer. Like, that's what we see, yeah. Yes. I don't know if you noticed, but, like, every time Jackson Maine is backstage in some way, the Beastie Boys are playing. Huh! Which, like, makes us think that this Keith Urban character, every time he's in his downtime, is just blasting the Beastie Boys, which is a funny incongruence with regard to who we're talking about. Which makes me think, like, because the Beastie Boys don't let their movie their music be used commercially. Like, I imagine... This was probably like a personal favor or something like
1: Bradley Cooper is friends with them. Yeah,
0: I imagine that that's what happened because I'm pretty sure Adam Yoke didn't allow any of it to be used commercially. Mm. But it's funny the way that all these genres don't line up.
1: (laughs) And and also, I remember when this movie was big, noticing somebody on Twitter or multiple people talking on Twitter about like how placeless this feels like you kind of assume it's happening Mm. in New York until they ride a motorcycle to Arizona. And then you're like, okay. They're probably not in New York. (laughs) But what if they are? They just like really got to know each other. So her career starts taking off. It's taking a poppier turn. And this funny thing happens where it doesn't really seem like she has been bothered very much before by his drinking or the effects of his drinking. And now I think we're to believe that he gets worse and then she gets bothered. But it feels like he's doing the same things. And Bradley Cooper looks like Aragorn in this movie. He doesn't take a shower for this whole movie. The drama sort of peaks when Allie wins a Grammy. She's nominated for three Grammys and she wins one. And her husband, they got married. Sorry, they got married. Her husband, Keith Urban who is also progressively losing his hearing and not dealing with the situation.
0: Oh, yeah. He's got a couple big holes in him.
1: Yes. No, he's really he's like falling apart. You know, his voice is kind of going to his hearing is going. He looks like Aragorn and under the effects of some combination of substances, walks on stage with her when she gets her Grammy and then sort of exultantly pees himself mm. and that's like a very sad scene but I guess I was surprised by how dramatically the movie treated it because Lady Gaga's manager is like her career will never recover after this and it's like you do know that we're living in a world where like the most powerful woman in all of media got her start by being in a sex tape I, I you <laughs> know I,
0: I we, let's talk about that later because I I'm on the manager's side
1: interesting OK, yeah. well, I mean, I think I agree with you, but I feel like you're on the manager's side for more reasons than the what happened at the Grammys.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. no. I'm on the manager's side in that, like, I think that she, we well, yeah, we'll talk more, but I think she she'd have to, like, take some from like a career management standpoint she'd have to do more than she does in this movie
1: well yeah yes there's a lot of possible outcomes here and the movie maybe creates another false binary because basically after this event they're like Jackson goes to rehab but he comes out and he's not sure if he's not going to drag her down too much basically and her manager basically is like she's canceling her European tour to take care of you and you've destroyed her career and she'd be better off without you. Okay, bye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dude, that's rough.
1: Which you shouldn't say to someone.
0: (laughs) Especially not when they're in this state.
1: Yeah. Garth Brooks decides that Allie is going to hold herself down for as long as she is still married to him and taking care of him. And he's in a downward spiral that cannot be stopped. So she goes off to do a concert and asks him to come sing Shallow on stage with her. And then he, trigger warning, dies by suicide, just like all of the male protagonists in all of the other Star is Born movies, either directly or ambiguously. I didn't know that. I was very surprised by that. Well, Chris Christopherson, I think, does some drunk driving Mm, okay yeah i remember when this movie was first big and i remember reading a review that spoiled that ending and i was like oh geez wow that's dramatic i was thinking that it would be more like the way we were where like you're together for a while and then you're not and you're sad about Mm. it and that's the movie and she ends the story by again this happens in every version getting on stage and performing in his honor and in this version she sings a song about how she'll never love again and that's the closing beat and I was just like oh no (laughs) I don't like that
0: but also she sings that song because he wrote that for her yes it has her saying that through his voice and not only was I in a mess of a codependent relationship while you were alive I'm in it Forever,
1: Yeah. I
0: love this movie because mm-hmm. but like this movie feels a lot closer to like Requiem for a Dream, but it's like with every most everyone's drug of choice. Mm-hmm. And like when that turn happens where he's at the Grammys and the bottom third of the movie is a wreck from that point on, it feels like Requiem for a Dream when everyone's like on heroin or on pills or whatever. Yeah. But like in that movie, everyone's like, look over there. It's that. And like, I can point to at least 10 people I know that this movie feels like it touches in one way or another. And then when you think about that last song being about I'm never going to love again because I'm so fucked up.
1: Mm -hmm. oh,
0: It's just a lot, man. This movie is a lot. I watched this movie at 2.30 in the morning this morning like God intended.
1: God did intend that. What gets me in the Grammy scene is that immediately after that, A, how she's like, really working to like salvage the situation and like because he's like staggering up on stage behind her and she's like we're having a lot of fun tonight and I'm just like oh my god like this is just like reminding me of the you know the endless sisterhood of women try, having to be like "Ha ha, my husband <laughs> and having to like smooth a rough edge yeah. and then when you come to yeah. the moment where like the edge can no longer be smooth it's like this time that I was driving in, I want to say, Humboldt County, California, like one of the areas with just, you know, where it's all redwoods. And I was driving on this highway at night that was like a piece of Christmas ribbon that a cat had gotten into. And I was making this really, really sharp turn. And then I realized that the turn was just kept going because there was a tree across the highway and I had to turn around and go. It's like where you're just like, taking the curve and taking the curve. And then there's just a tree across the highway and you cannot do anything about it. And your husband is peeing himself at the Grammys.
0: And for like a millisecond, I know what you're referring to is like, we see this happen. She realizes what happened and she tries to to cover it with her gown. Like she tries to like pick it up. And that's like the millisecond or two in which you think you can still do something about the tree. Yeah. And that whole scene where it unravels, where, Not just is it her having to deal with it, but her dad is there as played by Andrew Dice Clay. Yes. Marvelously.
1: It's true. I was amazed. And then it also has today's Andrew
0: Dice Clay, Dave Chappelle in it. (laughs) Where it's unraveling too and her dad's there. And like, there's that thing where it's like, you know your relationship is a mess or, like, you know your shit's a mess or whatever. But, like, hopefully no one else sees it.
1: Hopefully Andrew Dice Clay doesn't see it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, hopefully your dad doesn't see it. And then yell at your husband for fucking up your Grammys night. Oh, it's so brutal. On top of the fact that, as we've learned throughout this movie... This man's life, the original wound, the original hole in this man is his dad was such a drunk mess mm-hmm. and an alcoholic and neglectful and didn't realize when he tried to kill himself when he was 13, like all this shit. And then to have a dad yell at you yeah. because you are so fucked up trying to fill the hole of your own dad shit. This is a lot. This is like S- Space Mountain, but they just like spit razors at you in the Witch. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Space Mountain is one of the most intense experiences I've ever had. And the first time I wrote it, I was sure I was going to be decapitated. And it was very exciting. Why wouldn't you be? Exactly. Thank you. There are like little pieces of something that those stars are projected onto. And I guess I don't trust anyone anymore. (laughs) What stuck out to me about that scene to like post the Grammys, they're like getting him in the shower. Andrew Dice Clay is yelling at him. And then Lady Gaga is... You know, trying to pull him up to sitting in the shower so he doesn't drown. And she's still wearing her beautiful Grammy's dress, which oh, is this beautiful, yeah. big yellow. I mean, any woman between the ages of like three and fifty would probably recognize it as a bell dress.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: and she's got she, and she's in the shower wearing it. and And I realize that that's like a very frivolous thing to be focused on, but it is like I feel like it communicates really well that this is like this exciting princess moment and she's not getting to have it because she's having to take care of Garth Brooks.
0: Yes. That scene stood out to me in a really big way. And I, I didn't identify the reason as well as you, you just articulated, but yeah, it's like you, it's the exact opposite of how you're supposed to look at that night. And it just keeps right. pushing that in a really big way to the point where you're just at the end you two are a a drowned bell dress
1: yeah everyone's gonna get wet what made you choose this movie and what do you find compelling about it
0: I think I've gotten to a place recently where like I've started to unpack the trickier of some of my past relationships Mm -hmm. and I was like I'd love to see some tricky relationships on screen and maybe that would be helpful for me I started saying like a lot of stuff to my therapist recently, just like as a matter of fact about past relationships. And the therapist was like, oh, you're like you're describing emotional abuse.
1: Hmm. I feel like that's like the doctor being like, and here's where you had a stroke. And you're like, oh, a stroke. That would explain. Yeah,
0: precisely. (laughs) And then I was trying to, you know, unpack like why I wasn't touching that for such a long time or why I was unable to recognize it or why I was unable to access it and kind of the most immediate answer is often for me is codependent tendencies like mm-hmm. even by like touching it or acknowledging it I'm still worried that I'll like upset the person or upset the people who were responsible for their end of that stuff because I don't want my parents to be upset like all the different baggage things that like leads to someone having codependent tendencies yeah. and I was like I want to see that on screen and we the last time we covered it was in Blue Valentine when I wasn't touching it mm. yet and I want to See it here. And I what I love about this movie that I didn't quite remember. You know, it's it's sold as like a grand love story. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say love is like the seventh thing that's going on in this movie. I think there's a particular honesty. To how lovingly it treats both of the characters. Mm. And I think that Blue Valentine did that too. These are people who are acting shittily towards each other back and forth, although in Blue Valentine, it was much more the gentleman than it was her. Mm -hmm. And it's the same here. But like, I love that it is also just like acknowledging the humanity of these Mm -hmm. people and showing you kind of how they arrived here without excusing their behavior. Yeah. That's super important for me because as I sort through the stuff that I was just talking about, I'm also very cautious of like the way the internet reduces these conversations where it's like that person's a narcissist. Mm. I think it's important to acknowledge behavior that, is damaging and shitty. I'm talking about my situation in particular. I think it's important to, if you need to recognize what the other person did that was damaging. And if you, if you're like that person's a monster and that's the thing that you need, I think you should do that. That's what you should do. Mm -hmm. But I think so much conversation gets reduced to this, like diagnose a person Mm -hmm. as their behavior and attribute all of their behavior to how they're defined. So that person's a narcissist and whatever. And it's like, no, like the people I'm thinking of in this situation, I kind of understand how they got to where they are.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I think a lot of the behavior was harmful. I think about a lot of that now it still affects me. It still fucks me up. But like, I also like kind of get how you got there. And I never think that you did stuff maliciously. I think you like a lot of people had a difficult life and I had a difficult life and we were two people living difficult lives together who never learned how to be fully-fledged adults. Yeah. And I love that this movie does that. It portrays that in an unflinching way with tenderness and love towards the people because I think a lot of situations where people come out the other end fucked up, it isn't because the person was overtly a monster. It's because the person was an unregulated mess.
1: (sighs) I'm going to tell you something I just figured out in this conversation. So the people who I have received the most damage from are my parents, surprise, and (laughs) 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 wait, there's more. (laughs) And in both of their cases, I think with my dad, a lot of that comes down to addiction. And with my mom, a lot of that comes down to depression. And there's a process that everybody has to go through in validating the harm that was done to them. And I think that what you said, Alex, like sometimes people have to be monsters to you and your personal journey of healing. But at the end of the day, personally, I have to come around to trying to understand how my parents got to where they are because... I don't have like brand new issues because of them. I just got like their issues. So like if I think of them as monsters with no hope of redemption, then like I become a monster with no hope of redemption. And like, God, I'm going to live for like a while longer. I need to at least believe I can work on myself.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. Some of the situations I'm thinking of in my own life were fueled by alcohol and by unresolved mental health stuff.
1: In country rock.
0: In country rock. And I think that that's like, if you're in a situation where someone else is creating some chaos in your life, I would bet that it's more likely than not that alcohol and unresolved mental health issues, one of the two or both are what is at play. Mm -hmm. It's almost never someone is like, this is my plan. And I can't wait to fuck with this person like in a specific like we it is just almost never that.
1: This is why we love Annie Wilkes.
0: Yes, it is. (laughs) And if it is that and someone has gotten to that place like that has come from a place too, and it's not to excuse any of it. And again, if you need to be like, fuck this person forever, please do it is on the other end of that. Like from the like, I want to have empathy, I want to have empathy, I want to have empathy, I want to understand where the person's coming from for all the reasons that you just Mm -hmm. said. I also have to be careful to not be too generous. Yeah, We talked about this in the misery episode Mm -hmm. that sometimes you develop that empathy as a as a defense Mm -hmm. because that's going to make the other person the least angry and the least scary. And so you meet them where they're at. So it's not an easy, it's a tightrope, you know, and it's not an easy place to land and it's always something that's evolving in one way or another. But yeah, for all the reasons that you just suggested, those are the reasons why I lean towards at the very least going like, I need to understand it Mm -hmm. because if I don't, I run the risk of internalizing it and bringing it with me forward.
1: Yeah. And I mean, also, unfortunately, something that I tend to assume is that if someone treats me poorly or abusively or what have you, I'm like, well, that has to be within their right. And I have to have um, inspired that in some way that must be reasonable on their part. And so I think I have this obsessive need to figure out, like, Mm -hmm. how do people through lack of resources or faulty logic end up harming others? Because it's, you know, I don't know. I guess it's like you could go in that direction, or you could go in the like they're a monster and they like to do terrible, awful things for no reason. And they're both maybe answering the same question, which is to be consoled that you didn't. It's that it's not your fault.
0: Yeah. Well, I I've been in situations. The one that I'm thinking of in particular, I've been in situations where it's like, you know, because of issues with codependence, which is like. I want to make everything in the house as pleasant as it can be to reduce the harm that's coming at me. Yes. You know, I didn't know that marriages could be good. I didn't know that relationships could be good until very recently when I married Carolyn, who produced our (laughs) show is fucking fantastic. And that's been a huge part of the realizations of putting all these other things into perspective. But because a part of, The codependent thing also is like, please don't leave me person. I love like person who, who, who we've built a thing with, please don't leave, please don't leave Mm -hmm. some of the backlash or some of the, like the hurt has come from being like, if you don't do kind of exactly what I want, I'm just going to imply that I hate you or I'm going to ice you out or I'm not going to talk with you for months or I'm not like really fucked up behavior that like when you say it out loud, you realize that it's Mm -hmm. fucked up, but if you are coming from that mindset, like I was just talking about, you often imagine it's like, well, I, I, I must be, I must be responsible mm-hmm. because you know, like I heard Louis Louie Anderson of all people say this to, to Mark Marin on his show. He was talking about dealing with his dad who is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a kid, you think your dad is God or you think your parents are gods. And so if they do something fucked up that you realize in retrospect, that it was them who was fucked up, you think it's your fault Mm -hmm. and then you internalize that and you bring that, you bring that forward with you. So yeah, just trying to navigate all of these dynamics that would be a lot easier if we weren't three dimensional beings Mm -hmm. is, you know, probably a thing we'll do till the day we die.
1: (laughs) annoying it's like having to do dishes until the day you die it's like isn't there an emotional equivalent of just giving up and eating off (laughs) paper plates
0: the other day Carolyn was like are you in a are you in a bad mood or whatever and I was like I just our dishwasher's broken and I was just like I just feel like I've been washing dishes for like five months straight Mm -hmm. and that's both like literal I have been and a metaphor for like unpacking my shit
1: I also feel like we should talk about like what codependency is at some point, because it's like so essential to how so many of us live our lives that it just like never occurs to us to define it because it's like, how would I ever live another way?
0: Sure. Yeah. I actually found it when I was looking an article that brought me to this movie.
1: So you literally were Googling like codependency movies.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly what I was looking for. So great. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I found an article. By Steph Yin, Mm -hmm. which was published on WHYY. It's called The Codependence Guide to Codependency, which I really like. One friend, August Guang, told me that I jump into relationships too quickly. You and the other person get in very, very deeply, Guang said, and prioritize each other in a way that I guess sometimes feels like shutting off the rest of the world. And then she said another friend, Elle Siegelman, told me I'm conflict avoidant and a people pleaser. You sometimes go against yourself in order to maintain a level of pleasantness. So a psychologist says codependent people live for others. They don't know where they end and the others begin. Codependents believe that if they're loved, then they're lovable, says Dar. Lancer, codependency for dummies, they end up doing a lot of caretaking, mm. mostly with the intent to regain some control, but also for emotional validation.
1: Give me some warning before you read me a description of myself.
0: <laughs> in a codependent relationship, your partner is everything, your best friend, the only person you can talk to, your entire system. She points this out in this article. Codependency is not an official mental health condition. Mm-hmm. It's like a series of conditions around how we behave and structures of relationships. I was married and then I was divorced and I started sort of very casually dating a friend who she'd just gotten out of a relationship with her partner and she and her partner were still in couples counseling. Mm. Like in my head, I was like, that's crazy. I can't imagine that that's a thing that you would do. And in retrospect, I'm like, that's fucking brilliant. Like if I could have had that opportunity to do that with people, I would have done Mm. that. But when talking about my prior marriage, she was like, it's so, this, this person I was dating was like, um, it sounds like you're codependent. It sounds like you have codependency issues. You should read this book codependent mm. no more on codependence. And a lot of the literature on code and that book fucking absolutely changed my life. Cause it made me un- re-understand like this, st- the structures of relationships I look for and like how I got into them and what about my youth and stuff like sort of brought, brought me to that place. And a lot of our understanding, Of what codependence is comes out of like Al-Anon stuff because like Al-Anon's the group you go to if like one of your family members is an alcoholic.
1: I didn't know that until like a few years ago. I always thought it was like the Shasta cola of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, no, I have thought that for sure, and it's really just about understanding how that dynamic of a relationship has shaped your experience with everyone else. In my case, I would say my relationship with my dad for sure. And then it's like about how in particular in like relationships where there's like one volatile figure, the entire structure of the house and the entire structure of the relationships is constructed around keeping that person satisfied in some way. And then you can get into situations where it's either replicates that like we have in this movie where it's like, you know, basically she's dating Andrew Dice Clay. Like she's dating her dad. Like her dad appears to be a recovered alcohol, mm-hmm. like in recovery, not a recovered alcohol, but in recovery. Or you can get into a situation where it's two fucking codependents constantly creating chaos around each other. Cause they don't know what God they're serving. <laughs> <sighs> And I've been there. I've been in the other one. I've been in this one.
1: <laughs> Here's my question. I just feel like this is like this is so much to work on and work through and like learn how to even like notice what I'm doing in relationships. And like, what if I don't? because I'm a slacker and I just become like that goat lady in cold mountain who just lives in the woods with. The goats.
0: I love the goat lady. <laughs> Big goat lady fan. I
1: mean, <laughs> oh my
0: god! The one other thing I I will say that at least from my experience that isn't noted here, from the his perspective and from the codependent's perspective, in like these kind of unhealthy relationships, the place often where like abusive behavior tends up manifesting is in this grasp for control. Hmm. In my experience, I'm not going to say this generally, but like in my experience, it's not often like I'm going to control you it's like you are just in my orbit and I need something that can be in control and I can't control my shit because I'm not dealing with my stuff so and this is where I've been on the receiving end of is like you've seen them and The last thing they want is to be seen Mm -hmm. for kind of how they actually are behind closed doors. And so they will kind of do everything to instill some fear in you and try to control you to make sure that you're never going to let the world know how they actually Mm -hmm. are. I don't think that that's always like a they are a calculating monster thing. That's a like be it alcoholism, be it like unchecked mental health issues or whatever, like unresolved stuff, that thing in your brain wants to keep going and keep being alive. Mm -hmm. And it's controlling you accordingly and then everyone else in your universe so that it can keep going.
1: I had kind of a wild thought about suicidal ideation the other day, which I promise.
0: Hell yeah.
1: Which I promise is like weirdly hopeful. So I was thinking, what if suicidal ideation sometimes is our way of fantasizing about killing or escaping the ego. Like, mm. I have this funny thing where, like, I really don't want to die or be dead, like, ever. I would love to be a vampire. I just want to live forever and ever, ideally. But I still have suicidal thoughts sometimes. But I don't think they're like, I want to kill my whole body. I think it's like, I want to get rid of my self.
0: Yeah. I think that that's right on because like that, at least in, in like recovery speak with regard to alcohol is like all, mm. it has some like Buddhist parallels. If you have a problem with alcohol, it is tied with your inability to have a decent relationship with your ego, like a realistic sort of relationship with your ego. Mm. And often in the the program, there are steps for how you kind of deal with that. It doesn't have to be that, but like there are approaches to form a healthier more regulated relationship with your ego Mm. and if you don't have that you Mm self-medicate and you try to kill your ego increasingly the more the closer and closer to death you can get with the with the substance or Mm -hmm. whatever to fucking shut your ego off you're killing you're temporarily committing suicide (sighs) And then some people get so fucked up on it that they can't keep this is what we see in the movies they get closer and closer and closer on it and they already have depressive tendencies yeah. and we know when you go from ideation to like actuality that's usually like a like a very quick thing that happens doesn't last for a long time. And unfortunately, if you're in a situation where it can be done, sometimes that's just what happens. But and I don't mean to reduce it to that, but that's kind of the the psychology of what what occurs.
1: But right. Like the concept of harm reduction is like make it uh, make it harder because that moment will pass. Yeah.
0: Right. What we saw happen here is someone's like, I have so big of a problem with the hole in me and I have so big a problem with my ego that I see now when that manager comes and tells him that he's basically fucking Allie's life up, that I will never be able to drink or do enough drugs to to fix this. Mm. And I have tried everything on the other end. Like, I feel up against the wall and I'm overwhelmed with the feelings that I'm going to kill myself.
1: Yeah, right. And it feels like it's this momentary decision where, like, you could do that or you could keep driving and go sing your special song. and right. Yeah. And I feel like what people say and as uh, suicide survivors is that like they wouldn't have expected like another year or something, but maybe another couple of weeks.
0: Right. In my understanding, at least of my own shit, in seeing other people's relationship with the control thing in particular, it has to do with a relationship to ego. (sighs) like not in like you have a big ego but in the like right
1: yeah but like what an ego actually is which is you know what is it
0: the you that thinks it steers the
1: ship right it's like han solo and the millennium falcon exactly which is like not the greatest metaphor because yes he's steering it i know he's steering it but it is also a giant spaceship
0: and that's kind of where the like one step at a time stuff Mm -hmm. comes in all it is is accepting that you you are not the universe by thinking that you can control everything, you're inevitably going to fail every day. And when you fail, you're going to spiral. And when you spiral, you're going to go at war with your ego. And your ego is going to do everything it can to go like, let's just shut it off.
1: It's like being an overwhelmed 12-year-old who's gaming on a computer with too little memory. (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) just to swing right on back to the thing we're supposed to be talking about
0: (laughs) this is like our um our raising arizona episode yes
1: no i love it it's like this what's the podcast well sometimes we have guests and we talk about movies and sometimes we don't have guests and we just use movies as like excuses to talk about what we're dealing with mentally (laughs) that's exactly right But I always assumed that A Star is Born, like any of the versions. I never knew that it involved a guy in a death spiral falling in love with someone who is clearly entering a situation that they can't really alter. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's true across the board. I always thought that it was about a guy who was like established, but not on the way up anymore, helping a younger woman to ascend and then getting really upset when she eclipses him and... The relationship collapsing because he can't deal with her being more successful than him. So I think it's like depressing that I assumed that because that's true of a lot of other stories. And I think that this is Mm -hmm. a better story because it's about like the story of um, Annie, get your gun at least in the movie version is that Annie has this amazing shooting trick that she has to stop doing. So her boyfriend will still be able to get it up for her because she's upstaging him and she has to stop. Mm. And that's the lesson. And that's the theme. Mm. And I feel like this is just about, it's like not really about celebrity that much. It's mainly about just a thing that happens in relationships between humans.
0: Yeah. I was surprised by the same. I even I've seen this movie before and in rewatching it, I imagined that was more of the Hmm. drama. There's for sure there's one scene where her rise is becoming evident and he and his drunkenness puts a bagel with cream cheese on her face Mm -hmm. and then they kind of reciprocate it and it like turns cute kind of Mm -hmm. like her response helps make it cute. But she's doing again like that's some shit I recognize where you're like, I got to make this nice because if I look at it head on, it's a real bummer. Mm -hmm. that's kind of as far as it gets And like there's that there is that really nice scene where he's like can you stick around i gotta go do this thing he's gonna go play at like a pharmaceutical convention which is absolutely a thing that happens with these guys Mm -hmm. can you come with me and she's like no i have to the company wants me to record some things we're doing so well like people want to hear my songs or something and it's way better phrase than that and he's like he's like listen to what you said in a way like where initially I was like, oh shit, is he going to be shitty to her? And he's like, no, just like appreciate that that's a thing in your life mm. right now. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I was like, oh, that's like surprisingly lovely. Like there are places for a relationship that is a wreck for a relationship that I think that's like dictated by like a lot of like attachment styles, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that this is what happens. And this is my experience too. Like there are these places where like love does shine through. Mm-hmm. It just becomes so big in your imagination to cover all the other fucking bullshit.
1: Yeah. <sighs>
0: the last thing he says to her before when he kinda knows that it's gonna be the last time he sees her is he does that thing that he did earlier in the movie where he calls her name and she turns around and he says he he just wanted another look at her. Like Yeah. That's really sweet.
1: Yeah. I mean that's the thing. It it doesn't feel like Fifty Shades of Grey, I like does not to me pass muster as a love story. I'm like both of these people are just like One of them is awful, and the other one I don't even know what kind of interiority she's supposed to have. I guess there's, like, nothing to grasp onto. And this is just, I don't know, this just feels very real to me. Like, I think these are both, like, two pretty lovable people with good intentions who are, and this relationship is like obviously doomed from the start, but like, so have a lot of mine been. And I didn't know that at the time.
0: And sometimes you got to take the ride before you're going to know that you should apply some lessons from this relationship into the next one.
1: Yeah. Sing your song that your husband wrote you about how you'll never love anyone else. But then like, you know, time passes and you're young and, um, you got to honor people by moving on.
0: Yeah. When I saw this the first time and saw it on a plane and cried, I was like, this manager sucks. Like this manager, cause he does the wrong thing. Like we, you said yes. it at the beginning, like he knows that this man's a mess at least one time previous or one time prior He, uh, when they're both together, he's the manager says to him, no drink. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like goading him into having a drink when he knows that this guy's a fucking wreck. Like I, it seems Mm -hmm. bad. I know the Jackson Maine, not the celebrity kind, but like, I know that character very well. Like he's. He's really good at sort of maneuvering the situation to make it the least, uh, to make his obvious problem the least awkward thing for everybody. Like, I know that Mm -hmm. well, because that's going to serve him getting another drink. I, I, like, outright hated the manager character. Yeah,
1: because he's a snaky little motherfucker.
0: Right, but he's correct. Yeah. So, to the point earlier where it's, like, it's going to ruin her career to stick with this guy. Like, I don't think it's going to ruin her career as if it would be a bad decision or it would be the wrong thing to do if you were in a loving relationship that had like room to actually mm-hmm. grow. I think it would ruin her career in that like often people in that codependent situation as caretakers, because she was a caretaker for her father. Now she's a caretaker for this guy. Give their shit up mm-hmm. to keep another person happy because it feels like love. And I think there's that. But then to the point of everything you've ever covered and you're wrong about would the press let her, not divorce him or distance herself from him in some way Mm -hmm. and not have that always be the second paragraph of anything that is ever part of her coverage. Mm -hmm. Her wreck of a husband pissed himself at the Grammys. This idiot is staying with him. What's wrong with her?
1: Right. I've like heard from multiple people saying that their elderly relatives were like, I'm voting for Trump as opposed to Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton stayed with her husband who cheated on her. And it's like, so you're choosing, The person who cheats on everyone. (laughs) It's wild. Yeah, I mean, it is true that like in the optics of celebrity, you will be forced to stay the person you were in one moment in time for 50 years. Do you remember the speech that Julia Roberts gives in Notting Hill?
0: No. Remind me.
1: I forget why, but something made her sad. I think that nude photos of her from early in her career leaked to the press. And so she goes to stay with Hugh Grant um, in his house in Notting Hill (laughs) and he takes care of her. And then the paparazzi find out and they take a picture of, I think, her and Hugh Grant together or something very compromising looking. It's been a while. But anyway, She's like, the paparazzi have found me. They have seen my like half naked English tryst. And now I'm screwed because there's, there'll be a saucy tabloid story. And Hugh Grant is like, let's put this into perspective. It's just the newspaper. It's, it'll be tomorrow's garbage or whatever. And she's like, newspapers last Forever, these stories last forever for the rest of my life. Whenever anyone wants to write anything about me, they'll pull up this clipping, something like that. Which is, is I don't know, it's a good speech, it seems very true.
0: <laughs> yeah, what I think that this movie does exceptionally well that happens in life very well is he is both right and wrong. Right, everyone in this movie is correct and not correct in their assessment. <laughs> Even Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott's trying to do the best for his brother, but he's trying to do for the best for him. And sometimes you have to. We see what happens when someone in your life is too in over the head for the moment, and they're kind of not taking the initiative that they need to. And like, there's only so much that you can do before you burn yourself out. And he's like, I gotta, I gotta get the fuck out. I gotta go work for Willie Nelson.
1: <laughs> Start another pecan ranch. We we must comment on the fact that this movie's plot involves a pecan ranch.
0: It sure does. That gets that gets flooded and washes a grave away.
1: Yeah, just the one though. So
0: just the one, ideally.
1: And it seems like the guy, in it really sucks.
0: The last words that he says to Sam Elliott, you know, Sam Elliott earlier in the movie yells at him, and they get into a fight because Bradley Cooper thinks that Sam Elliott has has sold the property where his father, their father, was buried just to make some mm-hmm. money, and it turns out that like the property washed away in a a storm i would imagine and uh the the grave is gone
1: i like how you say a storm i would imagine like it probably wasn't on a nice peaceful day
0: (laughs) yeah i imagine it wasn't that (laughs) 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 and Sam Elliott reveals to him he's like I told you this at one point but you weren't a fucking bender and you didn't hear it and like whatever it's they get into a fight and that's when they split up or whatever they're back together finally peacefully they're not working together but they're back together and it's the last time that he's gonna see his brother Sam Elliott and he gets out of the car oh and Sam Elliott in that fight says you know you idolized our father and he he does not like that Bradley Cooper idolizes their Mm -hmm. father and then we learn In Bradley Cooper's last moments with Sam Elliott, that it was him that he idolized. And it's like, what a motherfucker.
1: (laughs) And he can only say it like while running out of a car, like how a seventh grader says, I love you to a parent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly
1: right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The thing I said at the beginning about how this movie's normalcy is weird to me, I guess what I mean. I guess what I mean by that is that like when a movie is trying to be about humans and it's this successful and high profile, it usually has a weird synthetic quality to it. Yeah. And this like doesn't to me, like it doesn't have that weird sort of robot aftertaste that a lot of other big movies have.
0: Yeah, I think that's so well said. I mean, even down to his his you said he looks like Aragon and unshowered and whatever like the choice around how he's portrayed when he's drinking and not drinking in the movie is done through like pretty subtle acting on Bradley Cooper's part like Bradley Cooper I think we all agree is a pretty good actor but he's got that like very fine layer of grease on him from when you're drinking and you're sweating but you're sweating booze and it's like kind of sticking to your face and all of that it never feels over the top. Mm-hmm. It never feels too big. Their fights all feel extremely real. Mm-hmm. They show her. I mean, it's lady, it's fucking lady Gaga. Like she's American capitalist royalty. Like if you like, but they show her as is a lot of the time, which is really kind of tremendous. Mm-hmm. And they show him very as is. But they also don't do that thing where they're like, you know, ugify a person. I think that that's why this was celebrated is like, it's, it feels so natural. It feels like very, very natural. It never, it does not feel forced outside of the fact that it's about fucking pop singers.
1: Yeah. And I also love how they just have like a very cute house. They, no one lives in like a scary pop singer mansion. Yeah. They just have like a cool kind of very Instagrammy house.
0: Yeah. It's like, oh, I want to thank you for helping me make this a home. <laughs>
1: I, you know what I want? I want a, like, crossover of A Star is Born with Annie Get Your Gun, where it is starring <laughs> Jeff Bridges as Rooster Cogburn and someone else as Annie Oakley, Bryce Dallas Howard. I don't care. Oh, my God.
0: I'll take it. I love that. I had forgotten, too. I really had forgotten about the whole, like, Dave Chappelle's in this movie thing.
1: It's impossible to remember that he's in any movie he's in until you're seeing it, which is that very true with You've Got Mail. Oh, my God
0: he's great in the movie in this role as Dave Chappelle I'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. this is when he came back and I think he hadn't done any stand-up yet and we didn't know Mm -hmm. where he like that he was a a very strangely intense bully against trans people it's so Mm -hmm. fucked up and we were just like oh good he's he hasn't been totally beaten by the system so it's nice to see him back and then it's just been sad since
1: yeah right because the whole thing of him returning was like I was caught up in the Entertain corporate entertainment machine and it fucked me up and now I'm back and I made it and it's like ah but either a part of you didn't make it or it was never there I guess. Yeah. Oh, they, they,
0: it was never their part. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's always the saddest thing when you re- that sums everything up in this whole fucking movie. Mm. Either a part of you didn't make it or it was never there. And then you have to spend the rest of your time going, did I waste my time thinking it was there or do I just carry this knowledge forward?
1: Hmm. I think it's interesting that like we have this conversation about comedians a lot because I feel like, I mean, we just talked in the first Wives Club about the like the women aren't funny thing and how that seems to be acknowledging that making someone laugh is very powerful. And if we're saying like, I have a very strong reaction to like consuming any more Dave Chappelle now that I know more about his beliefs about trans people, the fact that this is the response a lot of people have, I think, is an acknowledgement of the fact that laughter is very intimate Letting someone whose views you find abhorrent make you laugh can be like having sex with someone whose views you find abhorrent. And also maybe you're still willing to do that. I won't speak for everybody, but you know, it is, it is like an act of intimacy.
0: Yeah, it is the intimacy thing. I think you're absolutely right. But then it's also like, where else are you using that voice and your position of power and authority off a stage? Like, that's why I have problems with Joe Rogan, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not that he's a fucking knucklehead. Like he was that forever.
1: (laughs) Uh It's that
0: he now uses a platform to be a knucklehead. And by having that position of authority about having X amount of people listen, like you have some responsibility that goes beyond just being a comedian. Mm -hmm. Like you can still be funny. It's not to say you can't be funny, but like you have some position of power once you're off stage. Yeah. And you have a platform.
1: Yeah. I mean, We all learn from Spider-Man that with great power comes great responsibility. This is just like people in media need to be hearing these kind of relative of superhero speeches more, maybe, and then they can continue to ignore them. Yeah. And also it's like, okay, right. Like your your job is actually to be funny. And if you're not funny, then like we need to have a performance review. And some people think it's funny to be reminded that their worldviews are correct. And some people don't.
0: Yeah, it's true. Holy shit, what a journey, man. Yeah. Okay, so Andrew Dice Clay is the father in this movie.
1: Yes. Who is the daddy? Gosh, I would really, I would love to choose uh, Greg Grunberg, who's J.J. Abrams' friend, because I think it's brilliant to have managed to get small roles in some of the most significant media properties of the last 20 years because you were mm-hmm. friends with J.J. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I'm always happy to see him. I'm never like, oh, fuck, it's Grunberg Gren- again.
0: <laughs> no, I feel the same way. He has a kind face.
1: He does. Yeah, he's just like, you're you just always pleased to see him. You're like, oh, it's Greg Grundberg. <sighs> Gosh, I... I don't know. I feel like this actually this movie takes place in a daddyless universe because everyone's just kind of muddling through. Yeah.
0: Sam Elliott is in the in exactly the format that we asked this question. in. he is the daddy in this movie. Like the father is not around. He becomes the dad. He is fucking Sam Elliott. Like everything about him makes him the daddy. But it's so Mm -hmm. obvious that it's like you can't even you can't even humor it. The, my one flaw in this movie, the one flaw, at least as far as I'm concerned, that I remember from the first time watching it is like his take after he dies. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, God. Yeah.
0: What does he say exactly? Do you remember?
1: It's so weird. Well, what I remember is that he's consoling her. And then out of nowhere, he's like, music is 12 notes contained within an octave. And then it repeats. <laughs> and you're like, did he like skip a page in the screenplay? <laughs>
0: And then he also he said I somehow recall him saying something like this is all his fault like not this is all his fault but it's kind of like this isn't you like this was him and I get that but this would be a nice time to acknowledge how fucked up your family was I think
1: right I mean I feel like it's communicated very clearly that this guy has this you know metaphorically is like walking around with his intestines spilling out because of his primal wound with his dad and he's just kind of like sticking him in And they fall out and he sticks them in and they fall out again. And you know what else I think is that like, this is, I guess I decided to say the most complex thing for last, this movie feels like the experience of watching the E! Network in the late 90s, which was just like basically mostly downward spirals and told in a way that I think tended to make you feel that like all of this was kind of inevitable yes um and people who like weren't even famous enough to be the subject of an hour on e if not for uh their tragic deaths like savannah the adult star who i remain very attached to because i watched an e true hollywood special about her when i was 12 or something and i do feel like they're like the characters in this movie aside from lady gaga all seem to think like well this guy is just on a downward spiral and like nothing can be done like yeah that maybe is the part that feels the most dated to me because i feel like we are trying to create a culture of like not treating this kind of story as having only one inevitable outcome
0: yeah totally All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing these episodes, making them sound great. Thank you for everything you do, Carolyn. Thank you to Fresh Flash for producing the beats. On these episodes. To make all our transitions sound sweet, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Twitter. We post stuff there on a pretty regular basis. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. You can get those bonus episodes I was talking about earlier on in the show. Next week, we're covering Arrival with our great friend Ryan Ken. We had an incredible conversation. I can't wait to share that with you. I think that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. You! my friend, are good. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for making this thing possible. We appreciate you.